at first we thought our target would be mostly women coming off mat leave, mothers who didn't want to return to the workforce full-time and were looking for a little more flexibility. As it turns out, there's a number of other legal professionals who are just looking for a different way to practice. In business, sometimes your ultimate destination turns out to be a temporary stop on the road to where you're really meant to be. Whatever line of work you're in, there's likely a giant company that everyone aspires to work for. But what if you get your dream job and it doesn't stop you from dreaming? This was the case for Rubson Ho, who worked his way into practicing law at a prestigious firm before realizing he and a partner could create a far more fulfilling and efficient work environment on their own. They started Caravel Law, originally called Cognition LLP, and by embracing modern technology and remote work before it was fashionable, they saved a ton of money and saved their staff and clients another precious commodity, which is time. In this episode, Rubson will demonstrate how working for bigger companies can illuminate excess costs and stress and motivate a startup to work better and smarter for their employees and customers. I'm Don Cameron, and this is the CFO's Diary, Pathways to Growth, a podcast where I use my four decades of experience as a CFO consultant to analyze success stories from businesses across this country. Let's meet Rubson Ho. Rubson's story starts at a big law firm, but he didn't jump right into Caravelle. Instead, he first went the polar opposite route and joined the startup world. One of the reasons I left for startup, well, one was because like it was the dot-com boom of the late 90s and I was just sure. <laughs> watching, that, do it. watching that gravy train uh, go by. So, yeah. But the other was that... It, Working in a big firm, and, and I loved the firm that I was at, and it was, and I love the work and the people there. But I also found that because it's still a big firm, it's conservative and stuff. That you know they were slow to adopt sometimes technology. I mean, I, th- I remember when I started, I think we were using WordPerfect, and I also remember like we had a sort of information governance session where we were talking about like doing research in the library, and I kind of asked the question. I was like, well, you know, we have one computer connected to the internet in the library. But oh, it's in no. the yeah, but it's in the librarian's office. And so it's locked when, you know, outside of like the regular business hours on so weekends and evenings when young lawyers are quite often working. You couldn't get you couldn't access it. And it's like, is there any way we can get a computer that's outside of her office so that we can use it when she's not there? And the response I got was like, well, we don't really think there's anything relevant on the internet. So. Oh, gosh, nice <laughs> <I> comment. <laughs> so again, the web was just exploding at that time. So just seeing all the functions that it was enabling and the, you know, even just like a plain old website was new and interesting back then. I remember I wrote a paper in law school on uh, conflict of laws on the internet and how it would work and like just speculation. Like the first 10 pages of it were just sort of like, okay, here's the internet, here's how it works, like here's what happens because at that time there was not really, it wasn't that uh, ubiquitous as it is now. So I remember being fascinated by it and like thinking, okay, there's, there's a million things you could do with this new technology. And, and so that's part of the reason I went to a startup was just to kind of immerse myself into the tech world. And yeah, both you were curious about it, but two, it was also get to understand it better because that's where it's going. That's right. And that's where we felt, you know, in starting a, a firm that we could leverage a lot of these new tools coming out and a lot of these things just to give us the same capabilities as a big firm might have, but without the same staff and, and cost that it might take. By we, Rubson is referring to his partner, Joe Millstone, a fellow lawyer whose similar experiences hit close to home. 
we didn't start by sitting down and mapping out a business plan and trying to figure out, okay, here's a way we can build a new alternative law firm. It was more that um, I'd been at a startup. As it was winding down, people were leaving the company and they were starting their own businesses, so they're going to other startups. And they were coming to me and going, hey, can you help me incorporate or can you help us with our employment agreements and you know their day-to-day legal agreements? Or, oh, we've got this great deal with so-and-so, can you draft a contract for us? And I was doing it for them for like a hundred bucks an hour kind of thing because they were friends and I had no overhead. And then I got a couple clients where it's like, oh, can you work for us a couple of days a week as our sort of fractional counsel? And Joe happened to be my neighbor and he coincidentally happened to be, he got restructured out of his general counsel position at that time. And he was doing a similar thing. He was just kind of helping friends out. And at some point we were both like really busy. I think I had three clients for a day to two days a week each. And then yeah, I had a bunch of other sort of smaller clients coming in. And so we were like, wow, like, you know, what, what do we do with all this work? And that's when the light bulb went off. We said, well, maybe we can start a firm. We can offer these sort of fractional in-house counsel type services, but for a lower rate because we just won't carry the overhead of a big firm. So for the longest time, our head office was the, a bar that was equidistant <laughs> between our two houses. Sure. And that's where we would interview candidates and we'd meet sort of frequently. And um, we never had to carry the cost of rent and furniture and all that stuff. With Caravelle, Rubson and Joe built something that was truly ahead of its time. Since its conception, the company has been a fully remote option for lawyers looking for flexibility and innovative working conditions. It has grown to over 100 lawyers across the country. When you're experimenting with a new working model, there may be some sleepless nights. (laughs) Will anyone else see our vision for how the way we work can evolve in the internet age? It's a question that Joe and Robson pondered and even worried about, but it turns out they didn't have much to fear. One of our questions from the beginning was, well, can we find quality legal counsel who want to sort of practice in this model? And so that was one of these sort of existential questions as to like, how can a business like this grow? For the first little while, we were targeting sort of people that we knew. So our model is essentially to have legal counsel that work fractionally and and they can kind of choose the number of hours that they want to work. And so if they want to work, you know, a few days a week or a couple hours a week or seven days a week, it's all dependent on how much work we can give them. So if they're at their desired number of hours, we don't sort of force them to take on any more work and they get paid proportionately. So at first we thought our target would be mostly women coming off mat leave mothers who didn't want to return to the workforce full-time and were looking for a little more flexibility. That's certainly been a good source of talent, but as it turns out, there's a number of other legal professionals who are just looking for a different way to practice. While they couldn't have predicted just how much the internet and new technology would change the working world, Rubson and Joe knew something was happening. And the unexpected amount of interest in the positions they were recruiting for proved to them that they were on the right track. But aside from just drawing lessons about what not to do from his time at legacy companies, Rubson also gleaned valuable insights from his experience at a startup about what to do. So the startup I went to, I had a BlackBerry really early on as part of the product offering that we had. Yeah. But when we started Cognition, like it was just starting to be pretty ubiquitous, especially among professionals. 
you know, it seems trite now, but the ability to kind of like manage your communication with clients and stuff when you worked at your desk and worked at your computer. I remember at that time, most computing was done at a desktop. Like I remember I was at a firm called Steichman Elliott and I remember if we wanted a laptop, you'd have to go sign it out. So the mobile devices and, and smartphones was one big thing. And then just cloud computing. So the ability to take a laptop and be able to work from anywhere and connect to your servers and connect to your email. When we first started, we still had to keep physical servers in our IT provider server room. But within a couple of years, everything was on the cloud. And you know, there's a local company called FreshBooks. They were doing online timekeeping and invoicing. That made it way easier for our lawyers to log their time and for us to then create bills as opposed to like having to do it manually. What is that time frame from when it was meeting in the bar, doing your first interviews, to hiring a salesperson, for example? So we were probably both kind of doing this on our own in like 2002, let's say. And so we sort of started this limited liability partnership 2003-ish, I think, and then started bringing on people sort of, you know, one at a time. And our first, I think, three lawyers were just people we knew, and they were all women. That original target of, do you want to come back to the workforce? Exactly. And then, again, through word of mouth, we started getting more uh, candidates. And then probably a year and a bit into it is when we brought in our first business development person, which who again was a friend of mine who was a lawyer, but she just went right after law school, she went into sales. So she began selling for us and just sort of started building it from there. Uh, I'd say about three years ago is when we sort of got our first office. So at some point we felt like, well, we actually probably need, we need an something. Office. <laughs> yeah, we need something more than this bar. Yeah. Because uh, we had, you know, we were hiring staff to do like accounting and back end and billing and all that stuff. So and it's just a place, good place for us to kind of meet regularly to 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 go over strategy. So we started with a really small sort of open concept office. Every couple of years, we kind of moved to a bigger office every time our lease expired and bring on more staff, administrative staff and more lawyers. And we got to around 50 lawyers, I'd say, in about 2016. Actually, probably about three or four years into we expanded beyond sort of the small businesses and we started offering lawyers to larger in-house departments. So where we would supplement their legal departments. Were you in sales mode right from day one, or were you know? Is that something that was? I think so. Yeah, it's funny. Like I never would have considered myself a salesperson doing that. But then, after I went to that startup, I kind of appreciated that almost everybody in a, especially in a new organization, is in sales. Like your your computer coders are in sales. Your support people are in sales. Like everybody's there to kind of help the client and make the client happy. Sales. There's always relationship building, right? And just drawing on old relationships. And and that's what we found. It's funny because Joe used to bring a bunch of clients in and I'd be like, oh, how do you know this guy? He's like, oh, I went to camp with him. It's like, oh, how do you know this new client? Yeah, oh, they, yeah. I was I was his camp counselor or whatever, right? And, uh, and I remember saying to him, like, God, when I have kids, I'm going to send them to Jewish camp. We're like, all going to camp. Like, so, and for me, a lot of it was like my former law school classmates and sure. things like that, just reaching out. And, and then they'd find out what we were doing or they'd hear about it and they'd, they'd reach out, they'd co call us. What about the sort of the client demand? How did you get the pump primed for client flow at the outset? Again, I think a lot of it was just personal relationships. And again, we were offering legal services for cheaper, essentially, and a different mode of legal services. So a lot of what we're selling had to be based on trust. Like they had to be able to trust that you could deliver what you promised at a lower price. So a good chunk of our initial clients were just from people we knew or people that were referred to us. So again, a lot of it was just like reaching out to people, kind of explaining things, explaining to you, like, how can you do this cheaper? Once we explained the model, everyone was like, oh yeah, I get it. You have two sides to the business model itself. You've got 
a capacity, which is your like your hours in the bank in the warehouse to be able to deliver the work. And then there's the people who need who want to buy those hours, the client side. Right. Through the sort of the time that you were involved with Caravel, was it always kind of a we'll be doing both at the same time? Or is it let's go get a bunch of clients, fill the warehouse, let's go get a bunch of people and hours in the warehouse and find their clients? How does that all work? Yeah. So that was, again, that was a challenge, right? It was like, what's the chicken and what's the egg? We originally hired someone who was our, had a joint role of director of lawyer and client happiness. And so that person was responsible for sort of managing the incoming clients. The salespeople would find them, but we had to have someone who was kind of in charge of onboarding them and connecting them with the right lawyer and making sure they were happy. And then that person was also responsible for finding the lawyers. So it filled a HR function. Pretty quickly, we had to like separate that role because it was, there's too much work and you needed someone kind of focused on both. So to answer your question, we really were trying to do both in parallel. A lot of lawyers in transition, they might be working somewhere and they're just looking for a change. So we get, you know, we get quite a few lawyers in a pipeline. And then when we knew there was enough work for them, that's when they might transition over. You know, sometimes lawyers would start and then they wouldn't have the the capacity that they wanted. And again, there's always been times where, you know, the work's come in and we didn't have the individuals available to, to help out. So you hoped it would all match up, but obviously it never quite is perfect at the end of the day. So maybe some anxieties at some point in time where you had more hours in the warehouse than you had demand for buying them. Yeah, and that's always stressful, like, you know, to know that somebody's relying on your organization for their livelihood to make sure that you could get enough work for them. We've always had very good salespeople who are very considerate and personal, and they, you know, they really took that often took that on themselves to sort of say, okay, well, you know, we've brought in this new lawyer and I got to find this person some work to make sure that they are happy and satisfied and are able to support their families. Interesting. So the type of salesperson you hire is going to be uh, a certain type of person as well because they have to have that empathy for the person that's sitting there waiting for the work. That's right, yeah. So the clients come to Caravel and then get assigned to the various lawyers or how does that all work? We didn't start with any grandmaster plan, but we, we kind of knew there's a few issues with the practice of law from the supply side, from the lawyer side. So one is just the pressures of hours and, and having to put in the number of hours in either in private practice or even in in-house positions, just the demands of the profession. So you'd have a lot of lawyers who are like, oh, I love my job, I love what I do, but I just don't like the inability to control when I work, where I work, and how I work kind of thing. Right. And then the other issue for lawyers, particularly in private practice, is that you have this pressure to build a book. Much like in CPA firms, your progression in the in the firm is based on the kind of business that you can generate. And in reality, not you know, a lot of lawyers aren't made to be salespeople. Their objective when they started practicing law was not to become a salesperson, not to be a schmoozer or a business development person. So yeah. our model was to was one where we hired the you know actual salespeople, business development people who had those types of personalities, and then they would bring in the work, and then we would take the work and find uh, the most suitable lawyer for it, both in terms of skill set and availability. There were many times when we didn't have someone, when someone was sort of like, "No, you know what? I've got enough work as it is," and you know, I'd always be like, I had a mentor who once said, "Well, that's like being out of stock. You know, someone's coming to your <laughs> store and and they want to buy something, but you don't have anything yeah. to sell them." That's a wake up call for us to kind of really ramp up our recruiting efforts and, mm. you know, making sure. Yeah, we, you needed to have stock. That's you right. You needed hours in the, in the warehouse, eh? Yeah. 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 And to have that pipeline coming in. Technological advancements are inevitable. Yes, Rubson and Joe were quick on the ball and earned advantages because of it. 
But that wasn't the only reason they did so well. Think about this. From the outset of their business, their goal was to make things better from the perspective of both the lawyer and their client. They saw these tools and technologies as a way to improve workflow, which increases effectiveness and is better for the company as a whole. But they also tackled this goal with their unique model, which successfully circumvented the problem of putting all your eggs in one basket. Joe used to always point out that, you know, our lawyers would have like, let's say three or four regular clients for the most part. Right. Kind of their core base uh, workload. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if one of them went under or one of them, you know, had to make cuts or whatever, you still had sort of three other mm-hmm. clients that yep. were supporting you, as opposed to if you work full time for an organization and they're having difficulty or they needed to make cuts or you weren't getting along with someone there, like you're kind of stuck there and if they make their cuts then you have you're going from full time to zero whereas we might be going from like three quarters time to two thirds time kind of thing. It turned out that their cognizance of providing stability and flexibility was about to become even more of a tool than they had anticipated. We were going at a pretty good rate until the 2008 crisis kind of kicked in. For about the first eight months after like Lehman Brothers went down and all that stuff, there's a lot of uh, paralysis. Yeah. You know, it was probably one of the first times where our growth was stagnant, kind of flattened out. But then as people figured things out, it really took off because suddenly there was this cost consciousness on the part of a lot of companies. And coming out of every crisis, it seems like you get a lot of new companies and new startups who kind of come out in response to that because I think a lot of people are laid off or a lot of people are let go. And a good portion of them will go and start their own businesses. Coming out of that, it really grew quickly. And then, you know, when COVID hit... And that's because you had lawyers that were available. That's right. Because of the crisis. That's what you're saying is when you say uh, it grew, it was because of the... It woke up people who might not otherwise have changed. It's a bit of both. From the start, there's always questions from both the customer and the lawyer side. The customer side is like, well, if you're charging less, you must be an inferior product, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I'd also always point out where... I'll, you know, the only airline that hasn't gone bankrupt in North America is JetBlue, which is a discount airline, right? It's because they have a lower cost base and they've just structured their operations differently. They can still you, fly a plane. Hey? Yeah, yeah, so you still get it from point A to point B. Or, you know, you go to Costco and you can buy something for, you know, 30% less than it costs you across the street at uh, Loblaws. So, again, it's just a different way of providing the services or the goods. And then on the lawyer side, there's always a question of like, well, who am I going to end up working with? Like, what kind of clients? And, you know, am I going to get the number of hours that we need? There's a security thing, essentially, right? Like, uh, you know, maybe I'm better off with a full-time job with more with job security. Being the accountant then, on my side of the fence, there's a couple of uh, questions that I always have to ask. In the early days, how did you finance the business? What did you do? <laughs> One of the issues that we had is that, again, we were growing at a pretty rapid pace. And so... As we grew, our cash flow obviously became more difficult because we yep. would pay our lawyers before, quite often before we got paid by our clients. And if it was flat, you know, that money would sort of self-fund itself eventually. But as you grew, we were, we were always kind of short cash. So it, Joe and I would go months and months at a time without taking a draw or, or removing any salaries. So that's so it's partly internally financed. We never had a bank line or anything. We, we um, just... I think we talked to our banker once and it was early, so we didn't have a lot of, well, we had no at, real hard assets. And um, 
And so, yeah, a lot of it was also financed off of our own personal credit lines. Uh, I think in retrospect, I might have committed earlier to expanding the, the business oh, okay. uh, quicker. But, you know, we probably didn't do some things we could have done to expand the business because of of the capital. The impact itself. on cash flow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was tight for a long, long time, especially sure. Uh, sure. as we got to working with the bigger companies, you know, their payment terms are even worse. Net 90, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Like, oh, if you're gosh, lucky, yeah. right? And, uh, and they were bigger billers. So like, you know, they were good clients and that they were, yes. you know, take two of our lawyers for three days a week kind of thing. But then we'd have to finance that and pair of lawyers. And, you know, and that was, again, that was, and I credit Joe. Joe was very good at sort of staying on top of like receivables and stuff and trying to make sure that we collected. Again, part of our challenge is that the lawyers are working, they're getting paid, but we got to know like if the client's in trouble or if the client's like, you know, not paying anything. What we happens gotta, if you don't collect? Yeah. Yeah. Cause we need to put pens down at some point. But, you know, there's a bit of a disincentive for a lawyer to do that because, uh, yeah. So we at some point we had to change our agreement so that the, there was some credit risk for the lawyers. A bit of a shared thing, hey? Yeah. Yeah. It, not, it wasn't 100%, but, you know, it was, it was something so that, uh, again, they would stay on top of it. Your compensation model with the lawyers was um, like a, almost like a fee split. Correct. Yeah. So we pay them a percentage and then we would keep a percentage. So that was, you know, again, for a lot of lawyers, it was a good, healthy percentage. But the flip side is that they, you know, if there was no work, they weren't getting paid. So sure. they, they were taking a risk yeah, either or. by working with us. Yeah, You've mentioned the innovation officer a couple of times and saying how important that person is. And you've had one, uh, Caravelle had one for how long? I mean, when did it first have an innovation officer? We've had two people. So we had, first one we hired was she was kind of working with a lot of our startup clients, but then part of her mandate was to, you know, look for tools and, and uh, resources. At the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Take what you learn and apply it. Yeah. Right. And then we had another individual who was, again, same thing, like he, he sort of was tasked with trying to figure out how we can implement different tools. Prior to that being a, a somebody else, that was a role that both you and Joe played for quite some time at the start, I suspect. Yeah. And that's, that was, you know, sort of being a bit of a tech geek, like that was, it was always fun to kind of look for things and, and try to see what was available and how could use it. Again, in a in a professional space, like there's always questions of security and yes, you know, regulatory privacy, yeah, privacy, regulatory issues and stuff yep. like that. So that was always paramount. So sometimes it was hard to kind of you know to have the time to really evaluate tools and figure out like how we could use them. And the person we have now is actually she's she's got a background as a coder, so uh, a software engineer. So like oh, she's okay. Yeah. In terms of implementation, like she's got the process in mind. Like she knows how, you know, these things can kind of be mapped out and, and implemented. Whereas for us in the past, it'd be like we'd have this cool concept, but then there'd be that uh, gap between like, you know, what we can do and how we can create new processes and, and kind of create, like manage the software to do what we wanted it to do, right? Like it's, we just didn't have that uh, in house capability. So things are way more efficient with her <laughs> running it. There's a theme emerging from Rubson and Joe's success story here. They structured their whole business around how they could make working better for their lawyers and as a result, their clients. They used technology, an innovative model, and even went as far as foregoing paying themselves to pay their team first. However, Rubson admits there were mistakes along the way. Probably on the micro level, I think probably, you know, not acting fast enough with problematic 
people, like either, you know, we had a few people that were really good lawyers, um, but just really had bad attitudes, like really, you know, towards us, uh, towards sometimes towards the clients. Um, we had other people who were, again, really good lawyers, but like weren't communicative enough or, or didn't, didn't respond fast enough to client inquiries. And it's, it's you know, frustrating because clients would call us and go, like, I'm trying to get a hold of so-and-so and like, I haven't heard back from him in, in five days and we got to respond to whatever. And, and we'd be like, okay, well, we can try to connect you with another lawyer. And they'd be like, no, no, I like him. I just need him to... <laughs> Could you wake him up? Call me back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And, I think part of the challenge we had as a sort of quote unquote distributed or virtual firm is like when everybody's not together, it's like you don't, one one is that you don't sort of know, you're not fully in tune with what's going on in people's lives and where they are and what's, what's happening. As early adopters to the remote work structure, Rubson and Joe also had to deal with the social challenges of working remotely which at that time were fresh with no obvious solutions. It's harder to build a culture, right? It's uh, because you don't have that same, you're not together, you're not sort of constantly communicating with them. You don't have the water cooler talk. You don't have that person in the lunchroom is like, oh, you know, I'm working on this. And the other person going, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. He just had a file like that. Sure. Last week. You don't have those ser- the serendipitous conversations. We tried a few different angles to that. We tried uh, some different newsletters. We tried some different, again, some software tools and, and communication. We tried some employee sort of slash lawyer recognition programs and that kind of thing. They all worked with various success. So it's just a matter of like, you know, is it worth the, the amount of time you got to put in to, to manage it? So do you find that at the end of the day, you still have to get together from time to time? Yeah. Yeah. So the firm does at least one sort of live get together every year. And then often doesn't a second one, you know, halfway through the year, and then quite often has uh, online sort of events or webinars. And that's one thing. That's one interesting about COVID is just as you know, like everybody's way more used to getting onto a online conference call or whatever. Yeah. So that's a way you can kind of build the culture more frequently and um, and make sure it is a a team versus a bunch of individuals doing their own thing disconnected. Exactly. Yeah. A bunch of mercenaries. And you know, there's still there's still a challenge of having people to get to know each other. You know, you're, you're a firm of a hundred lawyers now. It'd be great for them to know each other and what they do, so that they can reach out for like advice or help or whatever. If somebody else has a similar issue or expertise or something, you still don't have like that familiarity, right? It, it comes. You know, it's interesting to see like over time as we've had various in-person events, like people who've gotten to know each other from those events. Right. You almost need to do kind of an internal marketing process, sales process internally so each other can get to know each other like you do with the clients. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Rubson and Joe spent nearly two decades building Caravel Law. It grew from a small startup run out of a bar to a sizable firm with over 100 lawyers across Canada. Despite never putting the business up for sale, their success had attracted buyers early on. Before selling Caravel Law completely, they made a pivotal choice to make a partial sale in 2016. In neither case were we looking to sell. Like we never sort of had a process. So the first time was Axiom approaching us. We really liked their approach and we, we kind of knew who they were and we, and we dealt with them before. It really came down to like, could they meet our 
demands in terms of what we were looking for if we were going to sell. Yep, for sure. And then also like how was it going to affect our people? You know, in that Axiom instance, nobody was going to lose their jobs. We kind of knew that they had deeper pockets and more marketing muscle behind them. So, you know, I guess one of the underlying issues would be like, well, okay, if we don't sell and they expand here, then we're going to create a competitor. Then in 2020, they decided to sell completely. You know, the firm was was quite healthy. It was doing quite well financially. So same thing, like they kind of were introduced to us. Similar thing, we were kind of like, love to talk, but here's our number. If we're not in the same ballpark, then there's probably no point. And then we had a number of discussions that kind of got them around to sort of saying, okay, you know what, we can can accommodate your number. And, And then it just went from there. Now that you've done that, what's your plan going forward? What are you going to be doing? What's, you now got this freedom to do something else. What is it that's on your list of things that you want to do? It's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) My wife keeps asking me that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry to do it. (laughs) (laughs) No, so I had started a side business about a year and a bit ago. I got a bunch of former hockey dads together and we opened a hockey training facility with the intent that if we can get this working, we'll just open a chain of them. Oh, interesting. I was also exposed to a similar concept. We were out, I'm from Alberta originally, so we went out at Thanksgiving and I went to a nephew's basketball game and there's these warehouse, uh, put in the whole basketball court leagues that have started up and it's exactly that. It's plug and play basketball courts with the training facilities and league that's built right into it. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's the guy that runs the league is, um, I think he's an old NCAA player and and he's bought the franchise and doing that type of thing and they got four of them in Edmonton around the you know each kind of corner and it's an amazing thing yeah yeah that's great yeah so I think you're probably onto something again there I hope so you can kind of describe Rubson's journey as a Goldilocks story he started at the big firm made his way into the startup world and then combined the elements he learned from each to build Caravelle the just right of the story. Through his journey, he's gained a lot of experience and he has some parting advice to offer. The first piece, while seemingly being the most simple, is perhaps the hardest part in practice. Just get going. It's interesting in the professional services space, the upfront capital requirements are relatively low to to kind of start a new business, new business model. The advice might just be to, to try it and do it and commit to it early and see how it goes. His next piece of advice, whether you realize you're doing it or not, you're nurturing important relationships at every point in your career. When I've spoken to student panels and stuff before, I've sort of said to people, I'm like, look, you know, you're in law school now. Uh, just make sure you nurture those relationships, right? Because you just never know who in the future is going to be. Those are the values, hey? Yeah, you, it's going to be a partner who's going to be a customer. And I remember when I was actually an undergrad, no, sorry, I was in law school. One of my roommates, this is back in the old days when you had a landline, he had a list of 40 names next to his phone in his bedroom. And every night he would just call somebody and then go down wow. the list to the next guy. And then so by, yeah. by virtue of that, every month to two months, he was back in touch with people. Each one of them. Have a, have a conversation with them, yeah. And Holy smokes, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And finally, regardless of your career goals, experience of every form is valuable. Building a diverse resume was crucial to his own education and success.
I still think there's value in kind of going to work for the legacy firms and getting the big companies because it gives you a insight into like how they're doing it and what's working for them. B, it gives you the relationships you build with the people in there because again, they may be your future partners or sales enablers in the future. Having that credibility, like going to be able to go and say, and I used to work at Deloitte, or I used to be a... Yeah, pedigree, yeah. Accountant, yeah, sure. exactly. So when you're trying to sell your new service or new model, like there's some credibility as opposed to, you're wrongly, somebody who doesn't have that experience may not have, a, have that same capability to, to go in somewhere and get a meeting. It was such a pleasure for me to meet Rubson and share his story with you. Thanks again to Rubson Ho for being on the show and to you for listening to A CFO's Diary, Pathways to Growth. You can follow and learn more about this podcast at SavvyCFO.cpa or wherever you get your podcasts. Also make sure to rate and review. I'm Don Cameron, and I hope our pathways cross again.